Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, the first through the eighth verse. In other words, the very beginning of Mark's Gospel. And Mark starts out with the title of his book, which is The Beginning of the Good News About Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so basically he already presumes. He's, he doesn't have to tell you the story of how this came to be. He doesn't feel that necessity at all. He simply proclaims that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Whereas we find uh, St. Luke and St. Matthew taking great pains to bring about in our understanding of how this came about, Mark doesn't have that necessity at all. Instead, he goes back immediately into the prophecies and the prophecies of Isaiah. And he says then, it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah, look, I am going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So the beginning then for Mark is that which existed back in the Old Testament in the prophetic tradition, that it is there that the kernel of the reality that was to come to life, to come to full bloom in the life of Jesus Christ was planted in the Word of God by the Father. And so then what he does is going back to the prophet Isaiah, he goes with what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. And instead of, instead of going into the, uh, the Annunciation or into the birth of Jesus or anything like that, he goes back to the Baptist, the precursor. So he goes back to where it is before Jesus comes into the world, or at least into public life and into ministry. And so he, he quotes the passage from Isaiah about the precursor, about the one who prepares, prepares a way for the Lord. And then he says, and so it was that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the first thing then that happens is we encounter in Mark's gospel, first the prophet Isaiah, then the Baptist, the last of the great prophets. And what did the last of the great prophets have to say? He proclaimed the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he symbolically used the baptism, which was not an uncommon symbol in many different ways in the ancient world, that it was, it was not an effective sign as it is to become in Christianity, but it is a symbol in a way of being washed clean of our sins. In other words, first comes the confession, and then after the confession is the cleansing with water in order that they might be clean both inside and outside. And then it says that all Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him, and as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. So. When it says, of course, all of Judea and all of the people of Jerusalem, that's an exaggeration. Not all of them came. Some of them came because they had heard of the holy man coming in from the desert who was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. 
And since messianic expectation was embedded within Hebrew society, um, not all accepted the idea that there would be a Messiah, but many of them did. And they were used to holy men coming out of the desert with messages from the divine, with messages from God. And we'll talk about why that's so very shortly. But basically then, what John is proclaiming is the forgive repentance for the forgiveness of sins as a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so the people did flock out. Sometimes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth would come out, but out of curiosity, out of you know seeing who's there and, uh, and seeing what John is talking about, more out of curiosity than out of any care at all for the forgiveness of sins and for the repentance of their lives. And so they did not partake of the baptism of John. They simply were observers. But now it goes on then to say, then Mark describes John, and this is an interesting part of the gospel too, fascinating part. John wore a garment of camel skin, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. And then this is to identify him as one of the desert holy men. There is probably, most probably, some kind of a relationship between John the Baptist and the Essene community at Qumran. They were kind of what we would call a monastic community. They were anticipating and sure that the coming of the Messiah was close at hand. And so they decided they did not know what to look for or how to await the coming of the Messiah, but they wanted to be prepared. So they withdrew into the desert near the Dead Sea, and there they poured over the prophets, and especially the prophets Isaiah. And they studied them and embedded their whole life in the interpretation of the prophecies. However, they had kind of a structure to them. And there were two interesting things about that. One, and to put it in contemporary terms, they kind of had an educational component to them that the priests of the temple oftentimes would send their sons to them to be instructed in the law and the prophets because they were teachers and they were known to be deeply imbued with the prophetic tradition. Now, John's father, Zechariah, was a priest of the temple, and we know that it was while he was doing his priestly duties that the angel appeared to him and told him that Elizabeth, his wife, would conceive and bear a son. And so it was very probable that John perhaps at least was educated by the Essenes as a young boy, and that he spent, therefore, a great deal of time in the desert near the community of the Essenes. The second thing about the Essenes were that when someone had mastered the scrolls of the prophets, when someone had basically learned them by heart, and this was, you know, this somehow seems very daunting to us. The idea of memorization to us is uh, it's kind of foreign to us. We have to memorize only short things, small things. But before any, uh, any kind of, of the modern media existed, memorization was the common way of knowing things. The fathers in the desert, for instance, memorized the scriptures so that the word of God would be alive within them. The monk Pacomius in the, in the third century AD 
founded the first what we call the uh, Cenobitic monasticism. In other words, monasteries. Before that, the monks lived independently in independently hut, independent huts, oftentimes in clusters, but always alone. The Cenobitic monks lived in, in what we would understand and we would come to recognize as a monastic community. But the re prerequisite that Pacomius made for the monks to enter into the monastery is that they had to memorize all the Psalms and the New Testament. And so we think, well, that would have been the end of the community for us. But for them, it was a way of learning. And the idea was very clear in among the, them and among the Desert Fathers, that it was important to have the Word of God inside of you, that it would therefore, if it were in your mind, it would dominate your way of thought. It would be a constant point of reference for you in making observations or, in, or learning new things or encountering new situations. The internal framework of, of your mind would be wrapped in the Word of God, and it would make a great difference in how you lived your life. Think of ourselves, those few things that we do remember, for instance, words of songs sometimes, or something like that that we remember, they get stuck in your mind and you can't get them out of your mind. What if the whole thing in your mind was the Word of God? What if the whole thing that was stuck in your mind were the Psalms and the Gospels? What if the whole thing stuck in your mind were the prophecies of Isaiah? What a different outlook that would be. What a different way of viewing reality and interpreting reality that would be. Well, when in the Essene community someone reached that to where that Word of God was actually inherent inside of them, it, where, it, where it was their form of consciousness almost, then they would go off into the desert, which was a specific place. It was the desert between Jericho and the Dead Sea. And it was kind of seen, it's where Jesus endured his temptations, and it's kind of where Ascetics would go by themselves alone in the desert in order to encounter the forces of both good and evil. We know the story of, for instance, of the early hermit, um, St. Anthony of the Desert, and how he recounts the stories of, of wrestling with the devil, how he encountered evil, how Jesus encountered Satan in, in the desert too. And so those of Qumran of the Essene community who had mastered the prophets would go into the desert and then to be tested by the powers of evil in order that they might overcome them and discover then along with their memory and their knowledge they would then also encounter the spirit of God, the spirit of goodness, which they called the Holy Spirit which is not the Holy Spirit necessarily in the same sense that Christians know the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit then was the Spirit of God, which was the principle of the divine power in its dealing with humans. In other words, the, the interaction between God and ourselves was called in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit. It wasn't yet known to be a person because there was not yet the articulation of the Trinity, for we had not yet existentially encountered the Son. But they knew 
that there was some kind of dynamic and some kind of intangible dimension being the relationship between God and ourselves, and that they called the Holy Spirit. So they went into the desert. If they overcame Satan in the desert, then they encountered the Holy Spirit, the working of God in their lives. And when that happened, they would then come out of the desert and then they would proclaim what they had learned from the Lord and what they had learned from their knowledge of the prophets while studying the scrolls that became known to us as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written in the time of the Essenes, but discovered only in 1954. So basically then, John is identified as one of these holy men because that's what they did. They dressed in camel's uh, skin, and they lived on locust and wild honey. And that's real locust, they, the dried insect. They would either roast them or they would dry them and grind them up and mix them with uh, the sweet gum and so forth from the trees, from the, from the coniferous trees, evergreen trees that grew, that grew in the desert. Um, the same source, actually, the wild honey, the same source of the plant where we get the resin which we make into incense, which we call incense. So they would eat this highly flavorful honey mixed probably with ground-up dried insects, and that was the fare of the one who was in the desert without provision. That's what was available to them to eat. So then it says, in the course of his preaching now, John is now reaching deep into his knowledge of the prophecies of Isaiah, which is why Mark starts the whole thing out with the prophecies of Isaiah, showing us that Isaiah is the one who predicts the coming of John. John then interprets Isaiah for the people who come out from Jerusalem and encourages them and, and we will see as some of the readings go on that there is an ideal in Isaiah of the coming of the day of the Lord and the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of plenty. So basically, this Isaiah theme runs through this, and it runs through the Essene community into John and from John into the early Christian community and to the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so from the prophecies then, John the Baptist says, someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to kneel down and to undo the strap of his sandals. So basically he's saying to undo the strap of his, basically I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Where is he getting this image from? Obviously he has taken out of the prophecies the idea of the origin of the Son of Man, the origin of the one who is to come, the origin of the Messiah. Only just very briefly looking into the prophet Isaiah, we see, we see hints of that in Isaiah 714, when, when Isaiah predicts that the one who is to come will be born of a virgin. Um, not possible unless God is directly inter in, involved in such an event. And so basically he is recognizing and knowing that the one who comes in some way has this very special relationship with the Father that goes beyond just the spirit but also involves his body for he is to be born of a virgin and his name is to be God with us. 
And so then he says, when this person comes, when following me, and John is the one ultimately who's going to identify him as having, as, as having arrived in the person of Jesus. But then he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I am doing the symbolic baptism, the one that once you confess your sins, you are washed clean on the outside as well as on the inside. The cleansing of the inside is through the confession and the repentance of sinfulness. The cleansing on the outside is water. When we get to Christian baptism, the cleansing is very much on the inside. For it is there, then, that we are cleansed by the sacrament of baptism, not just by the pouring of water. And so he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the activity of God within the human person. So he will take what I give to you on the outside, and he will put it into your inside for you. It will become then a cleansing, not, a, not of the body, but an internal cleansing of the sin that we have carried into the world from us through the whole story of humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve up until the present moment during in which each of us is conceived. And so basically what John is saying is that this one who is coming to you, the one who is going to be your Messiah, the day, the one who brings about and introduces the day of the Lord, he will baptize you internally. I can only baptize you externally. Now, what is John thinking and how does this line up? You know, we, we, face, that, we face the very strange proposition that somewhere or other, along the way, John wonders if Jesus is the Messiah. Why would he do that? And the answer is because he is imbued with a prophetic understanding of the Messiah, which has been embedded in the popular mentality. If the day of the Lord comes, if the day of the Lord of triumph over evil comes, when that, that Isaiah spoke of, then in the popular mind, they're not saying this is a triumph over sin and death, and this is the kind of the, the reorientation of the interiority of humanity. They, they, they don't say that, they, they don't see that, because that's not part of the consciousness yet. What they see then and what they interpret into contemporary thoughts and images and ideals and expectations is basically one of a number of things. Um, that the great King David would return, or David's kingdom would return, or the great prophet Elijah would return and uh, overcome all of the powers of evil, overthrow the Roman Empire, do, do all of those kinds of things. In the Essene community, they said, they said well, you know, maybe, there, maybe there's two messiahs coming. One they call the teacher of righteousness, which is kind of in the prophetic tradition. And the other one they would call the, the Messiah, which would be in the Davidic tradition. And, uh, and they grappled with that. And then they wondered, had the teacher of righteousness already come? Had he already been killed? They knew that the teacher of righteousness, they knew the prophetic Messiah would lose his life. And uh, we, we, we read it in the Psalms. And we read it also in the, uh, in the Isaiah prophecies of, of the chapter 53, 52, 53, 
And, and so we, we, they know in going through Isaiah, going through the Psalms, they know that the prophetic Messiah, whom they thought perhaps was to, they called the teacher of righteousness, that perhaps he had already come and that, that he had already been killed and that had pre prepared the way for the coming of the Davidic kingdom. In fact, is there is speculation that the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament is intended to correct the, uh, the dual messianism of the Essenes and to reconnect the Messiah, both priest and king, in the one person of Jesus Christ. Because the Essene influence was heavy within early Christianity, and especially in northern Egypt and in, uh, in, in, in Damascus, where Paul was converted, and in northern, in northern Egypt, where a great many of the Jews fled during the diaspora, during the, during the suppression of, of Jerusalem and the conquest of Jerusalem. So be that as it may, whether Hebrews corrects the misinterpretations, the misunderstanding of the scenes, but at any rate, John is imbued with the pre-letter to the Hebrews understanding of Messiah. And so he then sees someone coming out of the prophecies that he has not yet been able to articulate through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah of Jesus of Nazareth. He does, however, have enough understanding and enough insight that before his misfortune of being imprisoned by Herod and uh, being beheaded with the command of Herodias, this man, who is a relative of his in some way, shape, or form, Elizabeth and Mary were some kind of cousins, that this man has been, it has been revealed by the Spirit of God to the Baptist in the desert that uh, this man is the Messiah, and he is the one whose John is not worthy to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. For he is coming out of the pages of prophecy. He is also a divine, a somehow or other, a being with the divine presence within him. This gospel moves us into the anticipation and the expectation of the coming of Christ. The church uses this particular gospel at the beginning of, of Advent in order to help us to prepare ourselves, in order to help us to pause and to think about what really does all this mean? We live liturgically what the church has lived historically, and we live it up to the precipice. We live it up to the point where the church has not yet gone, where we ourselves have not yet gone, and that is into over the precipice and into the eternal moment, into the eternal God. So liturgically, we pilgrimage through the ages from the expectation and the awaiting of the coming of the Messiah to his birth and manifestation, his presentation, his preaching, his miracles, his teaching, his passion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the post-resurrection experiences, the ruminating on the proclamations of the Lord and the, the charisma of the apostles until finally at the end of liturgical year, we come to the precipice of eternity and the feast of Christ the King and then we stop for we can go no further. And when we stop, 
we come back again so that this pilgrimage is a continual part of our life. We are never through with it. We will not come back to the beginning until we have stepped over to the precipice at the end. And so this is then what happens in order to keep us alert and to keep us aware of what this life is all about. It is pulled into the liturgical cycle of the year. And so we ourselves in developing a consciousness of the messianism of Christ, of Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, as King, as Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, in order for us to do that, we travel through the history of expectation, the travel through the history of the church. And Mark tells us in the beginning, it was written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Let's start the story then of the journey in Isaiah. Mark says. And who better to proclaim the Isaiah prophecies than the one who managed to memorize all of the scrolls of the prophecies of Isaiah and was therefore permitted to go out into the desert by himself to in overcome evil and encounter the Holy Spirit of God, which was the activity of God in the life of people before the New Testament articulated for us the personhood of a Holy Spirit. Put all this together and then think about what Advent means for us then. Advent is our opportunity to delve into the prophetic mysteries of the coming of the Messiah so that when, in fact, the manifestation of Jesus in his birth takes place in Bethlehem. We are prepared then to begin the journey. The journey for the Blessed Mother began on the 25th of March, the Annunciation, when Jesus was made incarnate in her womb. The journey for us begins when we begin to learn enough to expect his coming and then anxiously await his manifestation to us through his birth in Bethlehem and his manifestation to the Gentiles in Epiphany. So let us take this gospel tract then and reflect upon the deep human story and enter in the deep story of the working of the Holy Spirit, of God among us, God with us, stirring up within humanity the expectations of truth, the expectations of, Messiah, of the Messiah, the expectations of the journey to eternity. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.